The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, well, welcome to Squawk Box. Tuesday morning, Karen Cho, Steve Sedgwick, these are your headlines. Russia's Gazprom now declaring force majeure on some natural gas supplies to Europe with troubled German Uniper utility uh, heading out at the unjustified move. Uh, Apple shares decline, weighing on the wider market after a report that the tech giant will slow hiring and spending in some units, this amid growing recession fears. Financial heavyweights Bank of America and Goldman Sachs top earnings forecasts, but the bosses of both lenders outline concerns over inflation, with B of A CEO Brian Moynihan telling CNBC investors are on edge. The reality is the Fed has to slow down inflation and take it on, and that's what the market's going to be on tenor hooks every day, you know, as they watch those statistics come out, that whether inflation's peaking or flattening or turning down. SoftBank reportedly pauses plans for a London listing of chip designer Arm, with the recent political upheaval in the UK causing concern for executives at the Japanese conglomerate. And Europe sweltering in some of the highest temperatures ever, whilst England looks to uh, set a record-breaking 40-degree day today, potentially. Right, Gazprom has declared a force majeure on some of its natural gas deliveries to Europe. The Russian state-owned oil and gas giant has told several European customers, including the German utility Uniper, that it has been forced to cut back on gas deliveries due to exceptional circumstances. It comes as the Nord Stream 1 pipeline remains offline for routine maintenance until July 21st. However, officials fear Russia could keep the taps closed for longer in retaliation for Western sanctions against Russia. And let me just take a a step back here as well, because I think it's important to know what force majeure actually means in this industry as well. Um, Just quoting from the Reuters copy who got the uh, exclusive on this as well. Force majeure is known as the act of God clause. Uh, It's standard in business contracts and defines extreme circumstances that release a party from their legal obligation. The declaration does not necessarily mean that Gazprom will stop deliveries. Rather, it should not be held responsible if it fails to meet the contract terms. That is exactly what force majeure means. A term we often use in the mining sector, right? We see it in a lot of different uh, operations where they can't fulfil some of the product that they may have promised to customers. Because of flooding or some natural event, an earthquake or what have you. Exactly. Um, As Germany scrambles to secure alternative energy sources, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz warned against falling back into an over-reliance on fossil fuels. Well, Annetta joins us with more. Annetta, good morning. Fill us in on the details. Hi, good morning to you as well. Of course, um, the declaration of force majeure now by Gazprom is 
um, yeah, raising the alarm bells here in Germany that actually that also could mean that Nord Stream 1 will not reopen as scheduled from Friday onwards, because clearly that could be, uh, one has to say could, that could be an indication that the escalation is taken to a next level from by Russia um, by declaring now force majeure. But it also could just have legal consequences or legal reasons, because by declaring force majeure, they also are not liable anymore to damage claims. And that is what um, I was been told by people close to the, the economy ministry that for now they are expecting uh, or they, they think that is one of the big reasons because clearly uh, if Gazprom is not fulfilling its contracts, um, Uniper and others could actually file legal complaints and ask for damage uh, repair because they obviously do suffer a lot um, because of uh, the, 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 the loss of the gas from Russia. So that is the situation right now here on the ground. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. At the same time, we're watching very carefully what happens to that turbine, which is reportedly uh, or has been reportedly um, flown into Germany on Monday from Canada and now needs five to seven days, according to Commerçant, the Russian newspaper, to get to the location where it has to be at the same time. Others are also saying that the turbine is not... um, the crucial issue, whether Nord Stream 1 can open or not, um, it can also be reopened without the renewal of that turbine. So there are many, many moving parts in that equation. But one thing is clear, if uh, Nord Stream 1 will not reopen and the gas levels will not um, reach at least 40%, Germany will run into a very severe gas shortage crisis over the next autumn and winter. Annetta, thank you very much for setting the scene for us. Much appreciated. The European Union is set to tell member states, though, to cut back on gas consumption while unveiling a series of recommendations for businesses and industry to reduce their energy usage. Brussels will provide members with voluntary reduction measures next week, which could become mandatory if the energy situation deteriorates, according to the Financial Times. Let's get to Andreas Schroeder, who is head of energy analytics, uh, quantitative at ICIS. Andreas, thank you very much for joining us today. We are very much following this narrative around where the energy supply is coming from. Nord Stream 1 has been closely uh, analysed this week. What do you make of this force majeure declaration by Gazprom? Does it suggest that we are seeing a further weaponization of energy or is it something more around legalities that the company is just trying to protect itself around? Yeah, I clearly believe this is about uh, protection for Gazprom. So they want to be protected against further claims in form of litigation or any legal claims that customers like Uniper will uh, make afterwards. So now they, in retrospective, uh, try to protect themselves for deliveries, the the shortening of deliveries in the past weeks. Andres, how unprecedented is this, given we've got a geopolitical situation playing out and now you've got corporate wrangling uh, about legalities here as to who could be uh, on the hook down the track when it comes to this product not being delivered, whether it's a Uniper effectively suing uh, this company, uh, Gazprom, uh, when we finally get past the geopolitics? Yeah, so this is clearly uncharted territory and unprecedented in this form. So we did have force majeure, but only for very short periods, like one day or half of a day or so, but not for this extended period. So here, Gazprom is claiming force majeure for an extended period of several weeks already. So since mid mid of June, this is more than a month. 
Andreas, um, it's nonsense of the Russians to say that it's all about this gas turbine that hasn't come back from repair in time, isn't it? Bear in mind, this is a replacement part, I understand from the Reuters copy, that isn't due to be put into commission until September. Yeah, so this is not fully clear, really, since this is a replacement turbine and not a primary turbine. So it's not clear uh, on, on which grounds uh, Gazprom is really claiming this would uh, hinder them from uh, flowing gas on the Nord Stream pipeline. So it's a bit unclear and they leave their customers uh, um, in, in this intransparent form. So uh, we cannot really tell. It's, it's on Gazprom's uh, side to tell us. And Andreas, um, again, quoting the same copy, which quotes the Russian finance ministry, uh, despite protestations of a reduction in Russian hydrocarbons, it seems the Russian exchequer is making far more money in the first half of this year uh, than it has done in previous years um, from hydrocarbons sold to Europe as well. well. Compare for us and our viewers what has been promised by the EU and Germany and others compared to what actually is happening in terms of reduction on Russian hydrocarbon usage and, and necessity? Yeah, whilst the European Union managed in reducing the volumes of imports from hydrocarbons uh, in Russia, they didn't manage to reduce the price that they pay for Russia because uh, the volumes have been reduced, but the prices have come up uh, to compensate for this reduced volume. And this is a yeah, offsetting effect, unfortunately. So Somehow you could say the, 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 yeah, the sanction regime is a bit ineffective in that way. So this would be calling for a complete um, reduction and uh, zero imports from Russia. Andreas, can we talk about where some of the other supply is coming from? We know that Ursula von der Leyen signed a supply deal with Azerbaijan on Monday. There are moves afoot in Italy trying to secure more product from Algeria. To what extent will this offset some of the issues that we're seeing from Russia? I think this is clearly a long-term or mid-term plan that could pan out in one or two years of time, but not immediately. So there's some supplies that can imminently be stepped up, such as LNG or some, to some extent, Algerian flows and domestic production as well, uh, counting on Netherlands, for instance, with the Groningen field. But all of these uh, can add up together to some extent, but they will not be able to uh, replace the full amount of Russian imports, which have been considerably to Europe uh, in the past years. So here, uh, more efforts are needed to compensate in the coming years. So let's go through the worst case scenario, not the base case, but the worst case scenario. In fact, the worst case may be your base case. I'd be interested to know. If the Russians don't turn the taps back on, what is going to happen to German and European industry in the very short term? In the very short term, I expect a massive campaign for energy savings. So all households would have to save energy, but also industrial players would have to cut back on their, their use of gas. Uh, and there is an emergency plan on which industries would have to be uh, shut down first. How do we get to Let's take a step back, Andreas. You've watched, I'm sure, with interest, possibly with horror, over the last 15, 20 years at European uh, and, dare I say, at German energy policy under the previous chancellor as well. How is it that the most mighty European economy in the last, I don't know, post-war period, 70, 80 years, has left itself in such uh, a tricky position as well? This is an enormous historic policy failure, isn't it? 
Well, you could say it's, it was a business model of the German economy for decades long, a gamble on Russian gas, so to say, which was the cheap source of energy. So uh, uh, Germany always had good relations with Russia and was counting on their cheap gas, but it was then slowly entering a position of dependency on this Russian gas as well. And now it turns out Russia is using this uh, this energy as a weapon, really. And uh, yeah, Germany was caught on, on a, uh, as a surprise here. So this is a, um, yeah unfortunate dependency. But I think Germany is strong enough to also escape this dependency relatively quickly now. But, but, but what, again, everyone says, oh, Mr. Putin changed. Oh, whilst Frau Merkel was in charge, she could keep a control of him as well. That's palpably not the case, Andreas. We've seen Chechen wars. We saw a war that started in Ukraine that's been going on for eight years now, not eight months, eight years as well. We've seen proaction and the use of energy as a political weapon in Eastern Europe many, many times by Russia over the last decade and longer as well. How can the most canny political operators in Europe have been so naive? Yeah, I mean, not all of them have been naive. There have been warnings as well. Germany could have abandoned a few projects such as Nord Stream 2 earlier. They didn't do it for strategic reasons. They wanted to keep relations up with Russia and they were still believing in goodwill of Russia, maybe um, uh, in vain, uh, as it turns out now. But uh, Germany always had the stance of trying all, everything they could to, to keep good ties with Russia. And now it uh, turns out to be a wrong strategy in hindsight. Andreas, can I ask you very quickly about the implications beyond Germany? Because we did hear murmurs of consumption cuts elsewhere at some point. But uh, what do you think this means for the coming winter months that could be challenging for a lot of countries? Do you think we should be concerned? Um, I think the storage situation is very healthy in Europe, so we can survive a few months without Russian supply, but it would then mean we really have to cut back on demands considerably. But this can be done because there's really a lot of potential for energy savings on the household side, I would believe, but also on commercial and industry side. So I think it's not all in dire straits as much as we talk about of this. Uh, but um, we are a strong economy and we can cope with that. And there's a lot of potential for savings at relatively low cost, I would say. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Andreas Schroeder with us, Head of NG Analytics at ICIS. We've had some numbers crossing this morning as well. And uh, it's big on the earnings front. Novartis, uh, the latest with its report card, it's delivered continued strong momentum, according to the company's own press release. They're saying key growth brands, progress on strategic initiatives, also confirming their full-year 2022 group guidance. When it comes to the second quarter sales, they were up 5%. The second quarter core one operating income also up 5%, mainly driven by higher sales. When it comes to the operating income line, that was down 30%, mainly due to prior year divestment gains, higher impairments and higher restructuring costs. Let's get some more detail on this with Juliana, who's been covering the company for a number of years. Juliana, what do you make of the report card delivered by Vasnara Simhan today? Karen, good morning. Well, at a headline level, the numbers look decent. They're showing strong momentum in some of their key growth brands. Um, and they've also confirmed their group guidance for the year. But when you look under the surface, it's a little bit more complex. First, in terms of sales, you highlighted there that Q2 sales grew. They grew about 5% in constant currency terms, down 1% in U.S. dollar terms. In terms of um, operating income, you flagged this, and I think it is important. It's reflective of where they are in their journey right now. Oper 
operating income came in at $2.2 billion for the quarter. That was down about 36% in USD terms, 30% in constant currency terms. Now, Novartis is in the midst of a major reorganization. They announced it in April, which came with a major cost savings target. And part of the reason they're seeing this hit to uh, operating income is because of higher restructuring costs. And on that front, the piece of good news in today's results is on the um, SG&A cost front. They are now looking at $1.5 billion in SG&A savings by 2024. Back in April when they announced this plan, they were looking at $1 billion. So they've upgraded that cost savings target. In terms of outlook, they have confirmed their group outlook for the year. But again, under the surface, they have raised their guidance for Sandoz, which is their generics business, which they're currently doing a strategic review on. So they've upgraded their guidance for Sandoz, suggesting that perhaps they have downgraded their guidance for the other parts of their business. That could be a sticking point for investors today. And then on Sandoz, back in April, again, they announced that they are looking at strategic options for that business. There's a lot of speculation around what they may do with it. Could they look to sell it to private equity? Could it be a takeout target? Uh, Could they look to spin it off? Well, today they reiterated their comments that the strategic review of Sandoz is on track. We expect to provide an update at the latest by the end of 2022. So no major news on Sandoz, which I think they'll be pressed about today when they speak to investors. Again, the key positive is that they are making um, even better progress on SG&A than expected, and they're now looking at $1.5 billion in savings by 2024. But perhaps the sticking point will be that hit to operating income that they're seeing, and also their guidance. We'll be very keen to see what the company has to say about their core business and how they're expecting that to perform over the course of the year. Guys? Juliana, thank you very much. Coming up on the show, uh, we're going to talk about the markets, in particular Apple, which strikes a cautious tone as it reportedly lays out plans to slow hiring and spending next year. And for more on Gazprom's claim of force majeure and the possible impact on Europe's energy supply, you can check out the Scorkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. seen an Apple five-year share chart? I'm sorry, I'm supposed to read, but I'm going to do this instead. Have you seen an Apple five-year share chart recently? It is quite extraordinary. We spend a lot of time, and too much time, I think, on this channel as a whole, looking at the very short-term moves, when Mm -hmm. actually what we should be looking at is what investors see over a longer period of time. Let's have a look at the five-year chart. It is quite extraordinary. On the left-hand side, just below 50, actually, it's about 37 bucks. It's hit a couple of times during that period. Now, uh, we now are looking, oh my goodness me though, but it's come off from 183 bucks as the most recent high. It's lost you know, 35 bucks. It has lost a lot from that high. But if you look as an investor over the five year period, it is an extraordinary performance you've had, given the fact we've had such huge oscillation because of pandemics and now recession worries mm. and what have you. So. Very interesting, Chairman. Well, 2018 wobble is uh, still fairly sizable as you take stock of history. It is a wobble, but is it just a wobble? 
It's a very well thought of stock still. It still trades on 23 times forward, despite everything that's been thrown at it and the sector and everyone. Well, I think you've just set the scene as to why it was a problem for the markets yesterday, because yeah. it is seen as a bellwether, not just for technology, but for the broader economy now. I mean, look, Apple was a major beneficiary. Uh, this is the most disingenuous thing I'll probably say today, although it's a challenge sometimes. I've said a lot of disingenuous <laughs> things. But, 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 but it's, it was a major beneficiary of everyone having to work from home, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and a major beneficiary of a lot of the trends we've seen in recent years in terms of mobility, computer mobility, in my view. And it has kept itself relevant as well. It still hasn't hit the nail on the head on certain products such as the um, TV, the a car. TV itself, the car as well. But does it matter now, seeing as SaaS has kind of picked up the mount or software as a service and is just doing so well for this company? Yeah, I think uh, doing what it does best has glossed over a lot of issues around further growth for the company and the yeah. services side yeah, I think that's has clearly on. been well rated by a lot of big uh, banks and that's been positive for this company and also others. So that's filling a couple of gaps. Uh, reportedly preparing to slow hiring and spending in several divisions next year. This amid wider fears of an economic downturn. The changes won't affect all teams and the company is still going ahead with its product launch schedule. This according to Bloomberg. Again, very interesting. When, when we want to see where the market's going to go, we must look at the bellwethers rather than, dare I say it, companies that have never made money. Uh, and Apple, of course, is a bellwether. And, well, yesterday was a really interesting session. Weren't we up for a large part of the session mm -hmm. yesterday? We're up almost 1% on the Nasdaq yeah. one point. But the Apple story was what the market traders attributed the sell-off to. The fact that you now had this guidance around some sort of slowing down. And don't forget that the data's been very mixed. Even the banks were talking about that this week. Uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, last week, JP Morgan. Effectively, that the economists are seeing one thing. But companies are still seeing very high levels of inflation and the latest guidance really from Apple telling us that perhaps uh, we are hitting the brakes on the economy, the slowing that they are seeing and that they're anticipating, hence they're rolling out these strategies in their own business. And as a result, we saw these markets roll over, the gains that we had early on, the Nasdaq, that 1%, stripped away to fall eight-tenths of a percent by the finish, similar-sized percentage drop on the S&P. And worth noting, if you look at uh, the big movers to the downside, it was actually Apple stock for the uh, two major indices. When it comes to the Dow, seven-tenths down, United Health dragging that uh, index south. In terms of Treasury markets, we still have a lot of big events. So the market's concerned around, obviously, the Fed next week. But on this side of the world, we're talking about central bank policy this week. But as you can see, the positioning on the charts, we're still stretching out a, a range of about near on 20-odd basis points on the spread between the 10-year long end and the shorter end, the two-year yield. So uh, we are continuing to see those inversion fears signaling recession on the market boards. To the dollar, we've come off some of the highs on the dollar but that heady ascent last week. Uh, the trades this morning suggest that euro is trying to recover a little bit of territory. 101.45 where we purged 43 roughly, but uh, that is not a high level relative to history, but relative to very short-term trading patterns. It is looking much more supported this week than what it was last week. Uh, in terms of sterling, we're trying to close in on the 120 mark at this point. So it is a comeback strategy for the major currencies. But again, huge amounts on the agenda as we talk about Gazprom now in force majeure. Focus on Nord Stream 1 and the supply coming through. I think the market is very concerned about any change to the narrative about energy solutions here and energy supply and what that could mean for the pace of growth for Europe. In terms of 
The actual trade around commodities, WTI trading lower today, 102 the handle, 105.79 on Brent, and we are drifting south, so modestly weaker on these trades at this stage. Uh, let's push on to Asia and see how the market is trading across the board. Uh, Japanese stocks supported, but we are seeing selling elsewhere, in particular Hong Kong shedding 240-odd points, or 1.1%, Shanghai down six-tenths, similar tune to the Australian market, so mostly weaker across the board. It's picking up on that Wall Street lead. I've gone into a chart wormhole, Karen, because I was just looking at the Apple one and the five-year performance there. Now I'm looking at IBM. Let's have a look at what they did yesterday first. IBM shares fell in extended trade after the IT hardware and services company beat quarterly revenue expectations, but warned it will take a hit from the stronger dollar. Now, there's 144 there. Remember that, down 5.2%. The company's CFO told analysts both currency headwinds and the impact from exiting Russia has put pressure on near-term results, but reiterated the company's full-year forecast. And again, I'm just taking a look at IBM um, over a five-year period. Look at that. They've done absolutely nothing. Mm, so I think it just... Despite changes years again, as well. And, and look, a huge period where, obviously, a great period of growth, the economy firing on all cylinders. Then we've had a pandemic. Now we've got a war, we including the withdrawal from Russia as well. But again, it just, for me, again, IBM and Apple is not a trading pair, I don't think for many people, maybe it is, but just interesting, just encapsulates the success Apple has had, despite, as I say, that recent war we're talking about. It's a great point because you've had the company talking about the fact that it's at the forefront of all of these business trends for so many years. And I remember uh, catching up the last CEO, Ginny Rometty, and we yes. were in uh, Germany talking about how many of the big automakers needed to, to move towards uh, one platform. They needed to have their IT systems in place that were effective for the next generation of, uh, of uh, car, car making effectively, which meant more connected cars, it meant all of the EV uh, transitions we are seeing. But uh, clearly, as we're seeing, it's not working at this point in terms of moving the share price. There's still challenges yeah. here. And despite all the buyback that's gone into the sector and the company, I'd imagine, as well. Um, let's move on, because I, I know I'm, I'm playing on the producer's nerves. They want to get out this segment. Um, they won't get out this half at this rate. Uh, Goldman Sachs shares settled higher after reporting a big beat on both the top and bottom lines. Now, this despite the strong results. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon offered a somewhat downbeat outlook on the economy, calling inflation deeply entrenched. Deeply entrenched for all of you policymakers who think it's just going to disappear in the second half of the year. Mm -hmm. And adding it is unclear whether the situation will improve this year. Solomon appeared to walk back. Did he? Me and Mike were discussing this earlier on. Well, anyway, let's listen in. He appeared to walk back some of his comments, joining CNBC's Mad Money to clarify what he meant about inflation. There's inflation everywhere, and as I talk to CEOs that have big global supply chains, they're not seeing it level off yet. And so I'm not going to predict, you know, I think certainly we're going to see tighter monetary conditions to try to control that, but I'm not going to predict that, that trajectory, Jim, but we're just trying to be nimble and in a position to support our clients as they navigate what obviously will be a period of tighter financial conditions in order to try to tame that inflation. Should explain, this mic is not somebody in my head, it, well, he's actually in my head, it's, it's the producer of the show. Uh, Bank of America said second quarter results benefited from rising interest rates. Uh, revenue came in slightly higher than expected at $22.79 billion, but profit took a hit from about $425 million in expenses tied to regulatory matters. Speaking to CNBC, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan said the fall in profit had been cushioned by strong consumer activity. The consumer 
is posing the greatest benefit to the Fed and the greatest trouble in that they're employed, they're earning money, they're spending money, they have lots of borrowing capability, the credit quality is still strong, and they have more money in their accounts at the end of June than they had at the end of May, and frankly, multiples of what they had pre-pandemic. So that makes the Fed's jobs tough because they're trying to slow down this wonderful thing we have called the American consumer, who their spending helps drive our economy, and it's going pretty strong right now. Subscriber growth will be the key metric and focus later today when Netflix reports its second quarter results. The streaming platform previously forecast it would lose 2 million subscribers for this period. The weak guidance has weighed on the stock with Netflix shares down 64% in just the last 12 months. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.